Just to say, my name is Mervyn Scott, um, I'm uh, from the Republic of Ireland, lived in Dublin all my life, up to about uh, the age of 28. I moved to Cork, um, I lived there for 17 years, involved in evangelism and church planting, um, and then just about eight months ago, I moved to Northern Ireland, um, where I started a new post, and I'm sort of overseeing the work of a church planting mission. Um, I'm part of work with the Association of Baptist Churches in Ireland, uh, we're a conservative evangelical um, gospel uh, network of about 114 churches. We're going to actually have five more joining us uh, in May. Um, and our slogan really is um, uh, proclaiming Christ and planting churches. That's what we're, we're about. Um, but before I start forming, let's just pray and ask God to bless our time together and uh, to make this a profitable time. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace in our own lives here today, that you've saved us, that you've kept us, and we thank you again for the work that Christ did upon that cross on our behalf. Thank you for all that we've enjoyed, Lord, these two days together of teaching, of fellowship, uh, of encouragement in the gospel. And we pray even this time now will be an encouragement and a blessing to each one of us that we learn together and that, Lord, we'll be better equipped to go and to serve you where you've called us, where you've placed us. So we commit our time into your care in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, just to say, I'm a married man, uh, I've got four children, one wife, and uh, my children uh, range in age from almost 20 to almost nine, and um, oh, sorry, just looking on. Um, so I'm glad there's folk here from other parts of Europe, and what I'm going to say to you is that while I'm doing this seminar on planting churches in post-Catholic Europe, I've only ever lived um, for a reasonable length of time in Ireland. So for those of you working in Spain and France and Belgium uh, and other places, then if you want to chip in as we go along and maybe say, well, it's not like that in Spain, or here's an insight from France, or this is how it is in Belgium. I've got four children. I'm used to being interrupted. Um, so you want to contribute. You want to say something. If you want to disagree, maybe, um, you know, come back to me and stuff, that's fine. I don't want to be here as a monologue just today and just spewing out information and you go all the way going, well, that's not how it is in my place. So I'm not here claiming to be an expert on Europe, um, but I, I suppose having lived in a predominantly Catholic country, the Republic of Ireland would claim still to be about 96, 7% uh, in statistical terms Roman Catholic. And um, so that's kind of the, the, the basis where, where uh, I'm coming from. Um, and so I suppose most of my experience is in Ireland. Um, I will be using examples and illustrations from Ireland. Um, what I'd like to do is just hand this, give you this handout now. And um, we're going to pass that, uh, that around. Um, we may not touch on everything on the handout. And there may be things in the handout you want to question as we go along. Feel free uh, to do that as well. Um, the network of churches I'm involved in for the last 40 years uh, in the Republic of Ireland, we've seen a number of churches form. Um, there was eight churches in the Republic of Ireland in 1988, Baptist churches. There's eight churches now in Cork, another church plant on the way, which would be a granddaughter church. Um, and uh, there's about 27 Baptist churches now in the Republic from that figure of eight about 35 years ago. Um, and yet in places like Cork and Kerry, well, there's half a million population in those two counties. The evangelical adults out of that half a million would be around three to three and a half thousand people. Well, I'm not just including Baptists because, you know, I'm 
very aware there's lots of people who are believers who don't go to a Baptist church, but that's just give you the, the idea. Half a million people, roughly, about three, three to three and a half thousand known adult believers out of that half a million. Um, so I think very like France, Spain, Belgium, you know, other parts of Italy, uh, the kind of evangelical percentage to the population is very similar, uh, and less than 1%. And the Republic of Ireland is still today the lowest percentage of evangelicals in the English-speaking world. Um, that's just uh, the, the way it is. Um, so we're thinking about planting churches in post-Catholic Europe. Um, I know you've probably all let, read vividly that Left Behind series of books by Tim LaHaye, well, I hope you haven't, but um, what I want to think about just a little bit is, is what has, if you like, the Catholic Church historically left behind in terms of people's minds and hearts um, who are from a Catholic background. Now, I'm not from a Catholic background, um, so if you are, I don't want to sound like I'm patronizing either in terms of understanding everything, um, but I suppose having lived in the culture, having lived amongst people from that background, um, one of the things that really upset me when I was a child was around communion time where all my friends were doing the Holy Communion. And they were talking about how much money they were going to get from doing the Holy Communion. And I wanted to know how come we didn't do Holy Communion um, and get the, get the money uh, like they were getting. Um, so here's what I want to think about and here's what I want you to chip in from those other places if it's different where you are or you want to add or take away. Um, a bit like Vaughn touched on this morning, I think the Catholic Church has left a knowledge of God and an awareness of God's existence in the hearts and minds of the people uh, who were, belonged to the church or who were in it. Um, I would say up until the 1980s in Ireland, um, that image of God that was a very distorted one and it was of a harsh, angry, capricious God out to get you when you did wrong, um, no sense at all of grace or mercy or forgiveness. It was all really a harsh, angry God. And, and because of that, um, a whole cult around Mary uh, was established. Because the question will be asked, when you cut your knee as a child out playing on the street, who did you run to? You ran, of course, to your mother, to the tenderness of your mother's arms, to the softness of your mother's arms. So, so God is this angry, capricious being. We can't go to him. We can't even go to his son because he's of a similar kind of angry disposition. But we can run to his mother. And so the whole cult of praying to Mary, turning to Mary and so on, uh, is there in a lot of people's backgrounds. In the 1990s, and culturally I would argue the Republic of Ireland went through the swinging 60s in the 90s. So you had a society that was very much being held morally by the church. The church had it in its grip. What the bishop said, what the priest said, what the pope said would be obeyed. But in the 1990s, it was like somebody flicked a switch in Ireland. And society went from, if you like, outwardly anyway, obeying all the moral code to suddenly everything and anything. Um, and in about two weeks' time, we're going to have a referendum on same-sex marriage uh, in the Republic of Ireland. And I reckon it will be passed overwhelmingly in favour of um, allowing same-sex marriage. And those... Those conscience clauses that Vaughan was talking about uh, this morning, um, our government is not allowing some of those conscience clauses into the legislation. Um, they're just, they've just gone so far the other way. But God now, in a lot of people's minds, post-1990s, is kind of this old man with a grey beard and a rocking chair up in heaven, really wishing he could do something about the world's woes, but really he, he's powerless to do so. Um, and maybe he's a little bit Santa Claus like, you know, when you need something, when you're in trouble, um, when maybe you, a, a relative is, just, you know, he's got a bad illness or something, you call out to God. 
And so he swung from being this very angry, harsh God to be feared and kind of coward when you hear his name to this kind of God now who, well, he can't really do anything and who cares. But, but in a crisis, we might need him. So let's hang on to him just as an insurance policy. And in the 1980s in, in Ireland, we had the charismatic movement. And there was a Catholic charismatic movement. And what you'll find a lot of masses now, people sing songs that, that you'll go, hey, we sing them too, or, you know. Um, and uh, what that did for some people, it got them more into the scriptures. And you'll meet people in churches today who initially began to read the Bible, going to a char charismatic group. Um, and God, in his grace, saved them. And the more they read the scripture, the more then they, 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 they uh, as Vaughn's friend, he said this morning, they then would, would move towards looking for fellowship with other believers. And for some people, the charismatic movement brought them more back into the life of the church. For some people, it made them just, when it, the charismatic kind of buzz wore out, they just left the church altogether. And for some people, it got them more into Mary and her worship as well. And for a lot of Catholic people, they don't mind Jesus in a crib at Christmas time. They don't mind him on a cross, a dead man on a cross, that's fine. Um, but the idea of Christ on a throne having come from an empty tomb and being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the ruler supreme, that's not really in people's minds. Um, and certainly the morality that people would have in, in, in their hearts would be one based on the fear of not being found out. So a lot of our politicians, for example, in the past did all sorts of corrupt things. It was okay in people's minds, even kind of know, people knowing anecdotally they were doing them. But when they were found out, that was when it was wrong. And the idea is really that God doesn't really know what you're doing outside the church building. So you can go on a Saturday night to Mass, you can put on a face, you can be religious, you can walk out the door, you can go and commit all sorts of sins, but God doesn't really know because you've left them behind in the church building. Um, certainly in terms of the, the, the church's moral authority, it's gone, I would say, effectively, apart from maybe people 60 plus. But that younger generation underneath, um, in terms of what the church says about marriage, about divorce, about abortion, uh, anything like that at all, um, the church has lost its moral authority. And it's lost its moral authority a lot because um, of a lot of abuse that's taken place uh, within congregation, within the church, within uh, priests, Christian brothers, and so on. Let me give you one illustration of that. When the Pope came to Ireland in 1979, and I remember it well, on the street we lived on, we had a bus went down our road, we had a train, not too far from us, the main runway into Dublin Airport, but we were on the flight path of it, so our neighborhood was really noisy. When the Pope was in the Phoenix Park in 1979, you could have heard a pin drop on our street. And it was one of those days when you knew you were different because there was nobody else on our street. We were the only family on our street that day. Everybody else was at the Phoenix Park. But there was a youth mass in Galway, a city in the west coast of Ireland, where the Pope was here. <clears throat> we now know that the bishop who stood on the left-hand side of the Pope at that youth mass, where 90,000 young people were at it in a stadium, and the priest who was on the right-hand side of the Pope at that youth mass, the bishop, we now know, fathered a child with a woman in America, and the priest at the time was living with a woman, effectively, in Dublin, and had fathered two children with her. And that only came out after the priest died uh, of cancer. So what that younger generation who are at that youth mass are saying is, hey, hang on a second now. Here we've got the church telling us how to live. No sex before marriage, blah, blah, blah. And yet, look what was going on in their own lives. So the church has lost its moral authority. Um, a lot of 
Catholic people in Ireland's view of the Bible is that it's a book difficult to understand. Um, it's, it's all about you know, your interpretation. That's how you see it, but I would understand it differently. Um, they would see it as a book full of error, contradiction, and mainly because of the book that they've never read. Um, they may have a very ornate Bible on their shelf from their childhood in Holy Communion. It's up there in the shelf, something lovely to look at, maybe to remember the day their child was confirmed or whatever, but it's not a book really that's ever taken down and read. And part of that is because in the 50s, 60s and 70s in Ireland, people would have been told, don't read the Bible, you can't understand it, only the priest can interpret it. So it became a book to be, to be feared, but a book really that's seen as not having any relevance really in our lives um, today. Now socially in Ireland it's still um, very much you have to have your child um, christened. Uh, even the people who don't go to church at all who, would, who would, wouldn't even say you know they have any religious commitment to anything. Still when it comes maybe they have the baby christened they'll do that. It's a very socially powerful thing. Um, I had a friend who uh, his wife um, and him he's from a Catholic background and they, they, he was converted, met a girl who was a believer, got married. Um, his mother was a very devout woman. And one time when she was looking after her, their daughter, she was about a year or 18 months old, his mother went and had the priest christen the child um, because she was so afraid that should the child die or whatever, that the child wouldn't go to heaven uh, because it hadn't been christened. Um, now they didn't ask my friend about whether they wanted, they knew, his mother knew he didn't want her to get baptized, but because she believed it so, so vividly, she did. But that generation is going and dying. But people still get their babies baptized. They still get their children to do Holy Communion. It would happen through the schools in, in Ireland still. There would be a lot of Catholic schools who would who teach that and bring their children through that. And um, also a confirmation. Um, and still, by and large, the vast majority of funerals um, would be taken by the church in Ireland. Now, I was at a funeral a couple of years ago where I knew the man who died claimed to be an atheist. And he was actually French, but he was living in Ireland. Claimed to be an atheist. Now his wife, who was a reasonably practicing Catholic, asked the priest, would he bury her husband? And the priest said, well, if he doesn't come into the church, I'm not going to bury him in the graveyard. Right? And the husband had said he didn't want to, to be brought to the church when he died. So the priest said, if he's not coming to the church, I'm not getting involved at all. So I was asked to go to the funeral by a man in our church who knew this couple. And I went with him. And in the grave, there are two or three hundred people. And suddenly this voice started reading scripture and, you know, conducting the funeral service. And I thought, who is that? And it turned out it was the undertaker. Actually, he was conducting the... And what went through my mind was, I was standing there looking at all these people and thinking, they're probably thinking, hey, this is a much easier arrangement. And um, we don't need a priest. Now that would not have happened in Ireland 10, 20 years ago, just would not. Um, but that was, and that's, that's starting to come in more and more. And we now actually have funerals being conducted by humanists and so on in Ireland, um, which we hadn't had up until this point in time. And yet still, there's a very deep-rooted superstition amongst a lot of Catholic people. And the relics of St. Therese of Lisieux were brought over to Ireland um, about five years ago. And quarter of a million people queued up, sometimes for hours, just to touch the glass case that the relics, supposed relics, because they can't, I don't even know if they even know whether that is her, parts of her body or not, uh, were there. 
Now, some cynics in the press said, well, they were the same people just turning up at all the different venues, and, you know, and that's how they got quarter of a million. But there were still a lot of people went uh, to do that. Um, religion in Ireland, certainly amongst Catholic people, is always connected with money. Um, so people see that if, you're, if, you're, if you know, the church is always asking for your money and so on. So um, there's a lot of that too. So that's some of what the church has left behind, certainly in the Republic of Ireland. Now, if you're interested to hear, some people are nodding. If you're interested to hear some of these guys in Spain or France and Belgium, if, if, if it's similar kind of stuff that's there in the background in your countries as well. So just maybe a quick out into the audience to see what else is happening in the rest of Europe. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree? Is there anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, um, in, uh, in Croatia and Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, the, uh, the, you have to keep your house blessed every year by the priest, and he leaves a sticker. And um, I know a guy who can sell you a sticker so your neighbours won't know that the priest hasn't come in. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, are mass cards a thing in other parts of Europe when somebody dies? You buy a mass card, does that happen in other places? In Ireland, you, you buy a mass card for the person who's died. And the mask card can cost anything between three euro, five euro, whatever. And so, you know, um, a priest could get a hundred mask cards for somebody with the five euro in the envelope. So you can start doing the, you know, you see where that's all going, right? And the theory is that the priest, that a mass will be said for that person who's died to get their soul out of purgatory or whatever. Um, but there's a whole money-making racket in terms of the mass card themselves and in putting your five euro in the envelope for the priest to say a mass for the person who's died. Um, so there's lots of money involved. Um, and, and I don't know, but those, the greatest problem we have in, in, in Ireland is with the Jehovah's Witnesses going around knocking on doors and all the rest. Um, and they'll often say to people, you know, when they give them a leaflet, you know, it's free, but if you'd like to make a donation, um, they're into the money racket as well. So I would say to you, particularly in Ireland, certainly, and I don't know it's like in other countries, we were trying to do everything free to show that the gospel's free, but also we're not looking for your money in terms of trying to get you to hear uh, about Jesus. Um, anything else from anywhere else? Yeah. Yes, um, I'll let you know, because um, it's against your friends, uh, what about the, the praying the saints? And, uh, what about that? Um, because in France, it is uh, really happens that most of the Catholic people I know, they pray the, instead of praying Jesus or praying God, they will pray to the saints or pray to Mary, and nearly every time, whatever you do in the situation, is it the same in Ireland? Yeah, yeah, you pray to St. Christopher, I think, and you lost something. But a lot of people pray to Mary. I was talking to a lady on the doorstep one day, for example, and I said to her, you know, we're encouraging people to read the Bible. And she said to me, oh, I've never done anything as extreme as that, <laughs> right? Um, but she was serious now, she was, she was, she was, right? And yet this woman had been to Lourdes. And so I said to her, you know, isn't it amazing how God has given us a book in her own language, whether it's English or Irish, um, but you'd never take the time to read that, and yet you spend hundreds of euro to fly to a place where supposedly Mary has appeared, and obviously we don't believe she has, but obviously, I, my understanding of that is demonic anyway, but we can discuss that afterwards if you disagree. Um, you know, <clears throat> you've gone there to see something that may or may not have taken place. Um, and yet, in her mind, that was far more important than ever reading the scripture. So, yeah, people do pray, would still pray to the saints, they would pray to. Now, in 1985, there was a statue of Mary supposedly moved in a place called Ballin Hospital in County Cork. Um, and thousands of people went to this statue and prayed and were standing with the rosary beads and so on. Now, I think if a statue moved today, 
the media and society would kind of go, ah, there's a few, you know, extremists gone down to see a statue of Mary, but most people wouldn't kind of pay a lot of heed to it. But, but 30 years ago, that was a, that was a big thing. Um, so there's a lot of superstition, there's a lot of, you know, people are caught up in all sorts, and, 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 and because of the fear, I would say, a lot of people have, that if you leave the church, the safety of your soul has been put in jeopardy because the church is caring for your soul from the cradle to the grave. And so step outside uh, the church and you're in danger. But that's, that's if you like what the, what, the, what the Catholic Church has left behind. Yes, sir? I know it's Spain. It seems like every month there's some kind of procession. In all the other Catholic countries, is it the same? Um, the big one that takes place in Ireland now is the Corpus Christi processions. Where people take the host is taken out of the church, and particularly in rural towns, more so, um, it'll be a big occasion, and the whole town will turn out, and the, the you know the, the host will be taken from the church and parade around the town. Um, but for example, uh, they're talking now in one of the, the town where I was involved in planting a church. Um, there was kind of rumours beginning to circulate. Maybe this is coming to an end that people aren't that interested in it anymore, and so on. And, and again, it'll be more older people committed to it and being involved and carrying the host and all that kind of stuff. So it's still there. I don't think, we definitely don't have as many as Spain has, because I know there's a lot of Saints Days in Spain. And I think in, in Hungary, for example, I think there's a Saints, every day is a, there's a Saints Day in Hungary. And if you get a Hungarian calendar, there's a Saints name against every day on the calendar. Um, so I don't think we have as many processions as you have in Spain, but we still would have um, quite a few. And I know that's how they keep it always in front of and fresh Yeah, and the visualness of it all as well is the, is, is the appeal of that there too. That's almost completely stopped in the last 10 years in Belgium, 10, 15 years. So, like 10, 15 years we would have it often, now we don't see it anymore. Almost. almost. Okay. Well, let's, let's think then, because obviously that, that's in a sense the negative, but, but we want to be about sharing the gospel, don't we? We want to be about putting... And let me give you an illustration, maybe you've heard this before, but I think this, particularly working with people from a Catholic background, I think this is crucial. You've probably heard the story of the wind Challenging the sun to a competition. You've heard that illustration? And the wind says, you know, there's a man walking down the street with his coat. I challenge you to see if you can get that man to take his coat off. So the sun says to the wind, well, it's your idea. You go first. So the wind blows as hard as he can to get this man's coat off his back. But of course, the harder the wind blows, the more the man wraps the coat around him to keep himself warm. So after a while, the sun says, okay, you've had your time. And the sun comes out and beams his light and his warmth. And the light and warmth of the sun makes the man take off his coat. Now what I'm saying to you is this, we all defend that which is precious to us. For example, I stood on, 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 on I'll illustrate it like this, I stood at the doorstep one day talking to a lady in her, probably in her mid to late 60s, from a Catholic background. She told me all the problems she had with the church. I don't know what to believe anymore, she said. Church doesn't believe in hell, church doesn't believe in purgatory, church doesn't believe in limbo. I, now, now, I stood on that lady's doorstep, and told her that the church was all wrong because, you know, you've got wrong, you fuck. She would then go into a corner and defend her church. So what I'm saying is, I believe our calling is to speak the truth in love. Let's, let's the light of the gospel penetrate into the darkness. And in some cases, particularly in the younger generations, if you start teaching them about the errors of the Catholic Church in relation to transubstantiation or, you know, whatever, you're actually going to start educating people on what they don't know. You're going to start giving them information they don't have in their minds and hearts anymore. A number of years ago, the president of Ireland, a lady called Mary McAleese, went to an Anglican church and took part in communion. And the archbishop in Dublin condemned her 
for partaking in a service that wasn't a full, proper communion service. And the phone lines of all our radio talking programs were jammed with people ringing in saying, well, we don't believe the bread and the wine turns into the body and blood of Christ either. Um, and what the bishops then had to do was release a booklet actually explaining and teaching the doctrine of transubstantiation. So what I'm saying is that wind and sun illustration, particularly I think for people from a Catholic background, but I think it probably applies to people from any religious background. Um, and Catholic people, even if they don't go to church anymore, don't attend and not the, all the teachings of the church, if you press their button, they're still Catholic. I'm a Catholic. And they'll defend, if you like, their right to still be a Catholic, even though they may not believe anything the church teaches anymore. So I'm just saying, let's allow the truth and light of the gospel to penetrate people's hearts. And what I think a lot of, of, of the false teaching and also the abuse and the, the hypocrisy that the church has committed has left people confused. What do I believe? You know, is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there a problem? Where do you go when you die? And a lady I spoke to one day, and her, she'd buried her husband six months previously. And I was standing on the doorstep with her and she started quizzing me about what I believe about life after death very quickly into the conversation. And I'm thinking, where's this coming from? And she said to me, look, I buried my husband six months ago. And at the funeral service, the priest said Jimmy had gone to heaven. But after the funeral, we were back having a cup of tea. And the sign I said, I said, Father, where is Jimmy now? And this is what the priest said. Well, we're supposed to believe he's in heaven. Right? We're supposed to believe he's in heaven. You go to a Catholic funeral, and if you haven't been to one, I'd encourage you to go to one. What you'll find is the priest will quote John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And the person, you think, well, there's some hope here. Towards the end of the funeral service, you'll be asked to pray for the safe repose of the person's soul and save so many Hail Marys in the graveside and so on. And the person's gone from some hope to no hope to a vagueness. Um, and in terms of key gospel truth, I think that's a really important one. Um, I suppose substitutionary atonement um, and, if you like, assurance of salvation are two things that are so foreign to a Catholic mind and heart. That is just not there in the teaching. So people are confused, they're angry. I've listed some stuff there. Um, and they're also open, but they're open to everything. Um, and we had a lady once came to one of our outreach events. And uh, she's, this lady is, is a school teacher, well-educated. She was at our, our um, ladies' meal, Christmas ladies' meal. Uh, in the course of the conversation with my wife, she was going to, to uh, help arrange a youth mass in terms of instruments and things. She was then going to a recce group that, that on the Monday night um, you know, to have all this stuff done. Um, and so there's a whole mixture of stuff going on in people's lives and, and the confusion and the kind of vagueness of the, 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 what the church is saying has left people open to all sorts of things. And so Eastern religions, yoga, recce, all that kind of stuff is, is, is widespread, um, certainly in Ireland. Um, I often say to people, look, supposing I took a photograph of you here today, and I'm shaking my phone, and it's all blurred, and I say, look, next Acts 29 conference, that photograph's going to be up on the screen, right? You're all going to go, no, 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 you're not putting that up. That's not us. That, that's a bad photograph. I sometimes say to people, supposing the image of God you have, and what the church has taught you, is like a badly taken photograph. It's a bad image. You've got a blurred image of who God really is. Why not take the time? To begin to open the scripture and begin to see and find out what God has said for himself in there. Um, people obviously see religion in the world as well as being a bad thing. Um, and the danger as well is that we can be seen um, as if you like being the same as the church in terms of moral issues. 
And again, Vaughn touched on this this morning. We're not in the business of being moralizers, are we? Um, so to me, we've got to be very careful here. But um, we all think and answer people in terms of what we believe the Bible teaches. But our calling isn't to be out there campaigning against this, that, and the other social or moral issue. I think our, our calling is to be out there communicating the good news of the gospel and what God has done through his son, uh, the Lord Jesus. Um, so there's lots, of, there's lots of opportunities. And let me just focus in on really what I think we should do in terms of how we communicate the gospel. The first thing is this. Um, we need to be people of conviction who really believe the gospel is good news. Now, I'm sure we're all here today, Acts 29, church planters, we believe the gospel is good news. Yes, sir? I just had a question about the, the last point. Um, yeah. when, we're, when we're trying to preach positively for the gospel rather than negatively against this, that, and the other thing, what does that mean in terms of like the social and political issues that the countries are debating and pushing through, like gay marriage and stuff? Do we just say gospel and try to avoid answering the question of what we're against? Or no, I think we've got. I think we have to be honest and tell people what we believe God has has said and what this, if you like, what He's saying in His Word. I suppose what I'm saying is. For example, I don't believe it, it, it's our calling to go uh, and say stand outside a gay bar with a banner that says, you know, God is opposed to homosexuality. Um, and I don't believe anybody inside that gay bar is ever going to change their mind about that until they've actually been converted. So in a way, to me, what I've got to go and do is bring the gospel to those people, allow God to change their heart from the inside, and then their lifestyle will change but if somebody says to me, do you, do you believe in homosexuality? Do you, have you a problem with homosexuality? Then to me, I've got to answer the question. But I don't believe my calling is to go and actually... Is that... Is that and, and I suppose I bring that back to Catholic teaching as well. I don't see my calling... The gospel isn't... The gospel is revealed by God isn't an anti-Catholic teaching gospel. Because the Catholic Church wasn't in existence when the gospel was revealed. And the gospel transcends culture. So it's got to be able to, to go to a Muslim country, to a Catholic person, to a dead person. It's got to be able to... So in a sense... The light has got to dispel the darkness. Um, and so I think of those moral issues. What I'm saying is um, there are a lot of very right-wing Catholic groups out there, you know, saying all the things that, that, that in a sense, we probably agree with them in terms of their stand. But they're only, really do, they're only for those things because they see it as part of the church's teaching. Um, whereas to me, we're saying we disagree or agree whatever those things because of what God has said in his word and that's a difference as well and um, but that's a big and in some ways I think you've got to almost you know take some of those situations almost one by one I'm not going to stand and, and, and legislate for what you should or shouldn't do uh, today all I'm saying is there's a danger that we can be confused or just being the same as them because maybe on some of those moral issues we are in agreement but that doesn't mean in all the other teachings of the church we're the same just because we maybe have the same view on same-sex marriage or homosexuality or whatever. Is that, is that fair enough? Yeah. Um, okay, anybody else got a question? Was it good? No? Well, look, the gospel is good news. Amen? Amen. Amen. And what's great about the gospel, the gospel is free. We know the gospel has come to us. You know, the offer of salvation comes because a great price was paid. The ultimate price on that cross was paid by our Lord Jesus. But the gospel is free. And, and to me, um, we've got to be known as good news people. Um, and also, too, what I would say is, I think particularly in the mind of a Catholic person, we've got to work hard at, if you like, what Don Carson says in some of his, his books, about, if you like, restoring the big picture, the meta-narrative. Um, in other words, I think we go to somebody in the street and just say, Jesus loved you and died on the cross for your sins, right? 
for a lot of people, particularly in a Catholic background, well, they say, well, actually, I'm not a sinner. I've never killed anybody. I've never robbed a bank. I've never committed adultery. Uh, so I'm not a sinner. I have all done stuff. But I'm not a bad person. So if you're telling me Jesus died for my sins, not an issue. And a lot of that goes back to the thing I started with at the very beginning. Who is God? It's what Steve touched on earlier. Who is God? Because if God is Santa Claus on a rocking chair, an old man, right? Well, he can't be that bothered about how I live my life anyway. So we really need to go back and try to begin to build up a picture. Who is God? And his character and who he is and so on. And, and what happened in the Why is the world the way it is? Because sin came into the world. There was rebellion in the garden. And we are where we are because of that and so on. So what I'm saying is, particularly most Catholic people won't have a Bible background. They're not coming with that, with that if you like, Jewish understanding that, that those uh, people that, that, that Peter preached to in the day of Pentecost, they don't have that framework. So it may take longer, but I believe we're better off building that framework with people. And it means that they come to faith, then they actually have a framework to begin to be discipled with. Now again, I'm open to people to disagree. Um, I'm not saying if, you, if you're on a bus and you get an opportunity to talk to somebody. Um, we, 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 got, we got a taxi in from the airport yesterday morning and we ended up in a big major traffic jam because of roadworks and everything. But the guy driving the taxi is from Romania and he was just, because we said we're going to Cornerstone even Jags, it's like the door opened and he was just asking us all these questions. We had a great conversation with him and I brought a copy of Ultimate Questions, pocket version with me. Only one owed me of little faith, but it was obviously for him. And his name's Gabriel, so you can pray for Gabriel that God will bring to himself. But you know, he, he had lots of questions. Are we time to talk to him? I'm not saying if you're on a bus or a train or you just have a five-minute conversation and somebody says to you, well, what do you believe? You've always got to go back and say, well, let me tell you, in the beginning, God, right? But I do think you've got longer with people, build in that biblical framework so that Jesus coming and his necessity to come and die upon a cross and take our sins upon himself, that becomes, if you like, part of that picture. Um, and I would say when dealing with Catholic people, that is the crucial doctrine of anything else you can get across is, and I said it already today, substitutionary atonement. What Christ achieved upon that cross, his finished work, his perfect work, um, that all that was needed to secure our salvation was done there upon the cross. That is a foreign concept. Um, most Catholic people are trying their best. If they, if they believe in God at all and they've got some sense that they're going to meet him, they believe in trying their best, doing good deeds, going to church, you know, doing whatever you can, the golden rule, treat your neighbor like you'd want to treat it, all that kind of stuff. It's all ingrained. And so grace and the possibility of being forgiven completely because of what Christ has done, that is a form. So that to me is a, is a key doctrine. And even after people have come to faith, I've said in the notes, Galatians, Hebrews, John, Romans, they're key books to bring new believers through from a Catholic background, reinforcing salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, and so that is all important. Community. And my understanding is, you guys here, we all believe in this. And I would say to you, we don't often think about it, but you know what? So often, particularly people from a Catholic background, can see the difference in the way we do church. Because you can go to a Catholic Mass this afternoon here in Nottingham, walk in the door, stand in a pew, and walk out again, and you might not even say hello to the person beside you. In Ireland, and almost like in other countries, but in Ireland, a, a, a man can go to Mass by standing outside and having a smoke on the steps of the chapel. You've been to Mass. And what some young people do, by the way, whose parents maybe still send them to the church, they find out who the priest is, 
Um, and so they don't go. But when they go home and mum says, so how do we go? Ah, father, so-and-so went on a bit today. And they haven't been there at all. Um, but they got the name of the priest doing mass. So, but you know, the way we do church and our community, let me give you an example. We live next door. And one of the towns we were involved in, uh, in, in, a, in a young church plant, uh, the lady next door said to my wife, and they said, I'd love to belong to a community like yours. And my wife said, well, Mary, like, what, what is it that... She said, well, I've seen, I've seen, you know, people dropping their kids off for you to mine. I've seen when you were sick, uh, ladies from your community arriving with a meal for you and your family. Now, we do that naturally, don't we, as believers? I hope we do. Um, but that's not the way church life happens, really. And, and, and the connections and the relationship between people, um, certainly in Ireland today, within the Catholic community. So, so demonstrate um, our love for Christ by the community that we live in. That, that'll speak volumes um, to people. Um, one of the buildings, in one of the church plants in Yaw where we were, um, we were renting a building from, a, from an Irish music group, um, and a couple of their guys used to come along, when we, ever, when we had a fellowship meal, some of their guys would come along and just join us um, for a fellowship meal, and actually saw the way we, we operated and worked and so on together. Um, encourage the reading of scripture. And I would say, if anything else you can get across as well, is um, get across that it's this book. Now, supposing, for example, I started teaching something today on the second coming that you disagree with, right? What would you do? If I started saying, for example, look, I don't really think the Bible teaches that Jesus is going to come again bodily. And I think he's going to come like in a sort of a ghost-like figure or whatever. What, what, what would you do? What? Yeah, you, you get the Bible out. Yeah. yeah. See, as he was, uh, that's our thing, isn't it? I got a second verse. You're a thing, look, let's look, right? Acts 1 11 in the same manner. Like, you start arguing from here. But in the mind of a Catholic person, this book doesn't, that, that's not an issue at all. It's well, the church has told me, oh, well, I believe. And that's a huge cultural shift. So, what I would say is the more often you can say to you, look, don't take my word for it. Not, this isn't the, the thing of Cornerstone Church. It's not our. This is actually what God has said here. I encourage people to read the scriptures for themselves because so many people have not done that. And I met a guy, sadly, in the end, um, he took his own life, but he told me that he only read the Bible when he was in prison because um, he had nothing else to do. Um, but thankfully, and I know this is true in France, apparently the sale of Bibles in France is at an all-time high, um, I've heard. There's more Bibles being sold in France today than ever before. Um, and I think we need to pray that God will give a hunger to people for his word. Um, and most Catholic people have never read the Bible for themselves. They've heard it mass, but they've never, never read the Bible um, for themselves at all. Um, and I, I've put down the notes, and you all know this is true, but there's nothing like genuine love, caring for people, being involved in the community, communicating the gospel um, to help people. I was once knocking on doors one night in the town we were working in, and I knew a neighbours of ours had moved to a different street. And so I asked the guys, look, can I do this role? Because I know, I think um, Sean and Anne are living here. So sure enough, I knocked on Sean and Anne's door. Anne opened the door, um, invited me in for a cup of tea. She had a friend there, two husbands sitting, drinking Heineken at one end of the table, two wives here. The woman thought I was a Jehovah's Witness. So she started asking me all these questions. And in the end, I said to her, I said, do you think I'm a Jehovah's Witness? She said, yes, I do. And I said, well, I'm not. And my neighbour, Anne, said, well, no, he's not. Now, this was the night before Pope John Paul II was to be buried. This woman then said to me, do you believe the Pope's in heaven? 
And will you be praying a prayer for him tomorrow? Now, what would you have said? Well, here's what I said, and by the grace of God, I'm not claiming any, you know, but just really in that moment, the Lord has really helped. But here's what I said to her. I said, look, I said, I never knew the Pope. But supposing he was a holy man, we were told. I said, let me ask you this question. If tomorrow it's going to take millions of people and thousands of churches to pray his holy soul into heaven. I said, I know I'm not holy. I'm, only a, I'm a sinner. And my wife, you can ring her, she confirms. <laughs> but I said, if it's going to take millions of people to pray his holy soul into heaven, what hope is there for the rest of us? I left that home at half one in the morning and the two guys drinking Heineken and the end of the table got involved in the conversation. Um, and what was interesting was one, of, one guy's father had been in a charismatic group and he'd read something of the Bible um, before. I was, toward the end of my time in the town we were involved in, I, I ended up on the board of a radio station that I, I did a program every week on it, but I ended up on the board of the radio. And unknown to me, I'd come late to a board meeting. I told them I was going to be late because I had to visit somebody on the way. Um, but unknown to me, the chairman had said that when Mervyn comes, at the end of the meeting, we get him to pray a prayer for Maisie. Now, Maisie had just died two days before. Now, I didn't know this had been said, so at the end of the, the board meeting, Tommy says, now, Mervyn, prayer for Maisie. So you say a prayer for Maisie. Now, what would you do? Maisie's dead. Well, again, the Lord really helped. I had my Gideon's New Testament, thankfully, in my coat pocket. I was able to get it out. Read a little bit from 2 Corinthians 1. You know, blessed be the God of all comfort and so on. I gave thanks for Maisie. Thankfully, I knew two of her children. I gave thanks for her life, for her involvement in the radio station, prayed for her children, prayed for her family, and so on. That was one of those moments. And now, in the minutes of that meeting, it came back that Mervyn prayed a prayer for Maisie. I didn't get involved in correcting the, the minutes. Um, but obviously, I couldn't pray for Maisie, but there was an opportunity there that led to further conversation with people later on. Um, and what I'm, saying, what I'm saying here in this is that, that uh, we do need to be meeting people in different situations. Um, we may meet them on their doorstep, if we're doing door-to-door, -door, we may meet them on the street, but we need to be involved community-wise. And, and I would say, particularly in pastoral areas, in my experience, there's a huge open door there for gospel ministry when, when there's maybe a little in the family, maybe a death. But priests will generally, in Ireland anyway, only call to arrange the funeral, to pick up his envelope, for taking the funeral. So I have lots of opportunities to visit people pastorally who, who maybe have a loved one pass away, maybe give them a leaflet, maybe give them a portion of scripture, pray with them and so on. Um, because there's no aftercare. Now I'm not knocking the priests, it's just in some cases there's not enough priests and they're overstretched. Um, but there's lots of opportunities there in terms of that. Um, and I would say, you know, if people ask you to pray for them, pray with them there and then. And it's amazing even how Catholic people have never heard somebody pray and um, you know extemporaneously you know without kind of a format or a set prayer um, and that can have a big impact uh, on people as well um, i would say make much of occasions if you can like christmas and easter um, particularly if there's jehovah's witnesses in your area we need to work very hard at getting across the fact that we're not jehovah's witness so get out there at christmas time wish people a happy christmas and um, you know we give out gospel calendars at christmas time get get you into homes because the Jehovah's don't celebrate Christmas, they're not into it at all. We need to be out there. And of course, Christmas is a great time to celebrate the fact that God came into the world 
uh, Jesus was born and so on. Um, so use those opportunities. Um, and while we may not have as many festivals and things, we can hone in on those special occasions in the year that give us opportunities for gospel. In Ireland, it's St. Patrick's Day. It's a huge day in Ireland. And uh, we often give out leaflets at St. Patrick's parades, maybe put leaflets through people's doors, or maybe have a St. Patrick's night. Um, and I say for some of you in Europe, you know, everybody loves the Irish, right? Um, right? That's just that's just a fact. And I, I know I know of places in France and in Spain that uh, churches have run Irish nights around St. Patrick's time and they put up green, you know, shamrocks and different things. But of course St. Patrick was a was a believer and a gospel man. And um, so you can hone in on the message of Patrick. Um, now that might not work in every context, but it may work in, in some this microphone keeps slipping, isn't it? Um, okay. Um, so there's lots of opportunities there. And I would say too, if you can, uh, make friends with local media. Um, and I would say to you, local, local radio stations, local newspapers are a great place um, for getting, and you know, they're often looking for that which is not the same as the status quo. So they're fed up of, you know, if, if the by and large a Catholic community, they're fed up with all this stuff going on, but they'll take, if you're seen as being different, local radio and local newspapers will often hone in uh, on who you are and if you do an event or you you know you you, you uh, start meeting in a new building or whatever it might be use that as an occasion to get some publicity and it's usually free as well uh, into those areas um, has anybody else got anything they'd like to chip in in relation to some of those things that i've talked about in terms of gospel focus and um, don't forget that a lot of catholics will be um, inoculated against gospel terminology and stuff no it's not because um, underestimate the mediating role of the church in salvation so they say oh, that's the priest problem and they'll have heard all the terms and stuff so you need to ask them what they mean by that what do they think about it so you need to challenge that it's not just a, a, a term um, I would I grew up in a Catholic community in, in Washington West Sussex so it's Polish Irish and English and then it was actually a fantastic community um, really strong we did a lot of steam a lot of stuff together so it's one of the things that I missed actually when I Okay. Um, yeah, no, that's true. That can be true at a social level, certainly. But I suppose what I was meaning was, I think at a church level, there's never really anything done. You know, I think we celebrate community a lot more as, as, as evangelicals in terms of church things. Formal occasions, maybe Catholic people will do, you know, in terms of, of communion and so on. But in terms of getting together, you know, as, as like, for example, fellowship meal or even tea and coffee after service, or well, certainly in Ireland, there's nothing like that, and um, that takes place within the within the confines of the because you belong to the church, if you like. Um, there's no an irony because some of the best evangelical writings in the magazine First Things, which is a Catholic rag, if you like. Right. So in terms of you know their deep spirituality, so the priesthood and stuff, there's some fantastic stuff out there. Okay. It's just how the church manifests itself Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I think it as well, if, if you can get people reading material almost without them realising, an, an elderly lady uh, in one of the towns we were working in, and I suppose built up a relationship with this lady, she'd take a, a gospel calendar every Christmas, she'd take a, you know, a devotional booklet, I could pray with her and so on, but I thought, how do I get this woman to read 
anything more. And so um, John Blanchard's booklet, Ultimate Questions, is, is, is in Irish as well. And this one was a fluent Irish speaker. So I said to her, Siobhan, look, I, my Irish isn't good enough, but would you mind checking out to see if the Irish translation, now I knew it was, right, but if the Irish translation is, 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 is good, you know, if you've done right. So that meant she had to read the English and the Irish copy of Ultimate Questions. And she rang me a quarter to 10 one night, and she said, we were never told. And I said, Siobhan, what do you mean? She said, we were never told what Christ did upon the cross. We were never told all that he achieved there. And there was a lady in her 70s, and I, I believe that the Lord has brought her to himself, um, not just through that, but through other ways. Um, so let's just think finally about strategy, um, because what I would say is, I think, I think particularly in countries where it's difficult, uh, and where Catholicism is, it, it, it has been in the ascendancy and maybe is dwindling, but like France, Spain, Italy, I, and I think I'm speaking to converted here, but I think we need teams. Um, you need a team of people. Um, sometimes in the past in Ireland, a couple or a single guy was sent out to a town, and the Lord bless you, and we'll come back in 10 years' time, hopefully we'll see a church. Well, those days hopefully are gone. Um, but I would suggest we need a team, and in every team you need a, a community evangelist type person, somebody who can get out there in the community, making friends, making contacts, building trust, confirming we're not Jehovah's Witnesses, and just sowing seeds of gospel truth into people's lives. One-to-one -one gatherings around the scriptures, it may take longer, but I would say if you can get somebody doing a one-to-one -one study with you and giving them that gospel framework in terms of creation to Christ, then that is good. Um, obviously neutral or community buildings are great to find to use. Um, and become known in the community as people who do good <coughs> to all people. And um, you know, is not what Paul says in Galatians, you know, and do good to all people, especially to those of the household of faith. But we need to be people involved. I'm not talking about doing social action necessarily and good, good deeds just for the sake of it, but be known as people in the community who are helpful and doing good things. And then get to know as many, uh, get as many people praying for you in your area as possible. And my last thing I say to you is this, keep going. Um, even though at times it can seem like you're, 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 you know, you're beating your head against a wall and it's very slow and it's very difficult. God is at work. And gospel seed sown in God's economy is never wasted. And so while some of you may be in situations where it's tough and it's hard and it's slow and at times you wonder, what I encourage you to do is keep going. And the longer you stay, I would argue, the more likely you are to see fruit. Because people want to know if they jump ship from their church, they want to know if you're going to be there to walk them through that process after they've done that. So they want to know you're going to stick around uh, and be there for them. I think we've got two minutes left, so maybe a question or a comment, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Can I ask a question, though? Yeah. So I'm from Liverpool. Um, I was raised Catholic, family friends, all Catholic. So I know this stuff's been really interesting for me and really kind of good. But my experience is is all my friends and family come to us Catholic. But with, like, I know a lot of these countries are Catholic countries, but England is a isn't and so like in Liverpool, similar to guess Glasgow, there's a real tribalism to Catholicism, there's an insecurity and an inferiority complex that Liverpool people generally have. You add in a Catholic identity. So all, all my friends will say, I will say I'm Catholic, or do you believe in God? No. But are you still Catholic? Yes, so yeah. Yeah. and it, Catholics are on my heart because all the people I love are Catholics. Really. So what what would be your advice in light of kind of all the whole strategy for for that different context, where actually Catholicism, some of this stuff is, it, it, it applies, but there's a real tribal identity which changes the strategy, I guess. What, what, yeah. What, what have you seen? What, what could you advise there? That would be the same actually in the north of Ireland as well, right? Where Catholics, 
you know, historically have been a minority yeah. and have felt that same kind of threat. And, and in fact, some people would express their religion, not because they believe in, in God, yeah. but they go to mass just to show, hey, I'm part of this grouping, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I think somehow, a bit like what Steve was saying earlier, I think what you've ultimately got to try and do is plant communities of faith within that, yeah. right? Yeah. In other words, for example, I know a town in Northern Ireland where the town is equally divided, Protestant, Catholic. You can tell by the colours on the pavement, which yeah. right? Now, for a person to go from this Catholic community to, say, a church over here, is a five-minute walk, yeah. but it's a world apart. Yeah. And really what you need to do is go over here, and I've been saying to this church, you need to pray to, for God to open a door and a house over here where you can begin a Bible study in. Yeah. And don't care about them ever coming here, but actually try and see a church. Now, I'm not into... Black, you know, I hate the idea that there's a black and white churches in the southern states of America. That to me is an anathema to the gospel. And in some ways, you'd love to have a church ultimately where those two demonstrate to the community, hey, we're one in Christ. But initially, I think the walk, the journey is too far. And it's got to do with sport, you know, yeah. Rangers, you know, Celtic, you know, what you do on a Sunday. People go to Mass on a Saturday night, they can play the game, you know, Gaelic football, hurling on a Sunday, and there's no issue. We're asking them all to come. And that's just well, the big thing I would say, uh, I hadn't put it in the notes, but I would say, don't try to get people to come to your building. You know, Catholic people in particular. And they, in Ireland anyway, they'll tell you, oh yeah, what time again, half seven, you know? And you can tell by the way they're answering, they're not, there's no intention of being there. Um, so I think we do need to get out. So somehow I think you've got to show those people that they can still be, they can become a believer, but they can still support Celtic. They can still maybe have, you know, yeah. they can still they maybe... become a Protestant. Exactly. That's what they see. Exactly. No, no, no. No. And that's a challenge in Northern... Where I'm living now, I was telling some of the folks here earlier, before the thing started, I'm living in a village now in Northern Ireland that has in its charter that a Catholic church will never be built in this village. Won't allow a... Right? It's that sectarian and bigoted, right? And obviously in the past, those people thought they were doing a good thing by keeping Rome out of... Right? And... Um, but it's, un it's unusual for me, having lived in a totally Catholic community, now suddenly in this place where there's no Catholic church allowed. Um, but the idea there is people would feel if they were to become a Christian, you're asking them to become a Protestant as well. And I think that's something we've got to, be, we've got to work very hard to say, no, no, you can, come, you can come and worship with me and have a different political ideology, a totally different outlook in terms of sport and all the rest. But we, when we walk through, when we come together as believers, we're gathering around Christ, not around... But that takes long to convince. And all it takes is one person to come along and say something stupid and undo maybe five years of trust that you've built up. So, yeah, that is a... Because they would see you as a traitor in some ways. Initially, not found it, not Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what kind of advice would you have for those of us that are working in areas which are maybe a little bit further down the, the line in terms of the reaction to Catholicism where no one still goes to Mass uh, where people have turned away from Catholicism in great numbers and now they're, as the gentleman said, very inoculated against the gospel message because they think they know it even though they don't. Um, it might not be exactly your context, but I don't know if you've had any uh, words of advice for a situation like that. You've got you've to try and build friendship and trust with those people and sometimes when, when you know, a life incident comes along, like maybe a diagnosis of an illness or a death or something like that, and I know that sounds very morbid, but sometimes I think an opportunity comes like that when that kind of situation and they know hey that guy he's into prayer and God we, I, one of the hardest things I ever did was the guy who ran the building we, 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 we met in asked him to go and visit an atheist friend of his who was dying of cancer had terminally ill 
in, in, in a hospice. And I went to this guy, shared the gospel with him. He told me, look, thanks, appreciate you coming. I don't really want to hear any more of this. And two weeks later, he died. But here was this Catholic man who wasn't practicing himself either, asked me to go and visit his atheist friend. So I think it, it, it's building trust with people to get an opportunity then to go and do something like that. But it, that takes time and patience. Um, yeah, and relationship, that's what it is, it's key. Being there, being known so that when an issue comes, they'll come to you looking for help. I mean, I took a couple of funerals in the end in the town we, we planted in, um, because people didn't want a Catholic funeral, but they wanted something Christian. And while the person may not have known me personally, somebody else told them, look, go to him, he'll help you or whatever. One last question, then we better stop or we'll be out of... Okay, now could cause a riot? My answer to your second question is I don't I think those two terms are contradictory. I don't think you can be really evangelical and certainly Catholic in terms of following the teachings of the church. I've known people be converted while still being Catholic, no issue with that. But they were converted despite the church's teaching, not because of the church's teaching. And like Vaughan said this morning, I wouldn't. If somebody gets saved, I'm not going to go, now you've got to leave your church. Let the Holy Spirit do that. So but I don't think even Evangelicals and Catholics think. And what that's done in America is, it's caused an awful lot of people in America to stop giving to European missions because they believe our Catholics are all Christians. So there's been a huge drop in support from North America into European, European missions because of that. So I, um, and your first thing is, I, I would say to people, I say to people, look, I'm working with the Baptist churches in the Cork area, encouraging people to read the Bible. If I was kind of having more of a jovial conversation with somebody, I'd tell them I was a salesman, right? What I was selling was free, was available to all, right? And it lasts forever. Um, and just trying to intrigue people in terms of, 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 you know, getting into a conversation. Thank you for your patience. Like I said at the beginning, I wasn't here to say I had everything, you know, but I hope that's been helpful. And the Lord bless you as you go back to reach people from my Catholic background. Amen.